Well, if uh, you do have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Genesis 35. And I know Mitch offered once, I'll offer again. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and um, bring one to you. Before I pray, I just on behalf of myself and Roger and Dennis and Mitch, um, just want to thank you for uh, the kind words, the gifts that you gave to us uh, for Pastor Appreciation Sunday last Sunday. Um, it is a privilege. It's a joy to get to be here and to get to serve. Um, I'm not saying that because you pay me to say that. Uh, <laughs> It truly is, and um, before God, I just feel unworthy, and you know why, because I am, and so I thank God that he uh, has let us come and, and shepherd here. It's a, it's a precious, precious calling, so thank you for your kind words and your love that you show to us. Let me pray. Father, we love your word. We love it. We love you, Lord God, and and the fact that you have so graciously allowed us to have this beautiful, inerrant, inspired, holy, precious word that we read, we study, we pray through, we wrestle with, we preach, we sing, we discuss. God, what a masterpiece your word is. And so, Father, I pray for your great blessing and for your help in this time with a faulty preacher, faulty hearers, with all kinds of distractions and a ton of different things in the, last, in the next half an hour that can steal us away. And I just ask, Father, you would protect us and you would speak to our hearts. I've seen you do it over and over and over again in this building. And so I pray, dear God, help me not to become just expectant of your grace, but recognize it and be thankful for it, Lord. You don't owe us anything, and yet we are recipients of everything because of you. So I ask you afresh, Lord God, that you'd bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, you know that we were in chapter 34 of Genesis, which was a doozy of a chapter with some very interesting aspects to it and some very tricky aspects uh, for the preacher, probably for the hearer, but most of all just for a reader of Scripture as a believer. And as we went through that chapter, I come away with this question. Where do you go from there? Like in reference to Jacob and his sons and everybody, where, where do you go from there? Last week was full of lust. There was rape, genocide, jealousy, conniving, selling of a person, trickery. It was disgusting. And I think sometimes we, we forget sin is absolutely disgusting. 
we use the word sin a lot as, as Bible-believing Christians, and so it, it starts to get, lose some of the spicy flavor to it, to our, to our spiritual taste buds when it comes across. We don't, we don't think of it rightly. Beloved, sin is disgusting. Make you physically ill thinking about what took place in that one little chapter. One of the darkest chapters in the study thus far, I, I, would, I would say. And so it left me going, what do you do with that? Where do you go from there? What happens next? Is this where God finally goes, oh, enough! Wow. So we have a new special effects department back there in the corner. All right, let's take off again on the play. All right, here we go. Is this where our Lord finally says, you know, enough? I've just, I've just had enough. You guys, I have been so overly kind to you. I have just been consistently gracious to you, Jacob. And look at your sons. Look at some of your apathy, lack of leadership. Look at what happened with Shechem. Look, at, This is, I'm done. Then you turn to chapter 35, and it's one of the most grace-filled chapters in the book. That's surprising to us if we don't understand what grace means. If you, if you read chapter 35 and you go, are you kidding? That's just because we don't understand what grace is. Not only that, we start to buy into the lie that God gives us the good stuff when we act good and he gives us bad stuff when we act bad. So now we officially hold to a prosperity gospel and we've missed the whole point of the salvation that Jesus Christ has provided. So, chapter 35, this thing is buzzy this morning, chapter 35 should actually not catch us off guard, but we should go, it's exactly what God would do. But it goes so against our natural senses, right? So, this morning, I'm just covering 15 verses. Um, there's a bunch in this chapter, but I just want to kind of look at our Lord's response But on top of that, I also want you, please don't miss, I want you to notice Jacob's response and Jacob's family's response to God's response. So let me just remind you where things left off in chapter 34. Look at verse 30 of 34. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And that's the end of chapter 34. And that's where I have that question of, man, what's going to go on here? Because dad and sons are at odds with each other. Horrific things have happened. What's next? Verse, chapter 35, verse 1, and God said. <laughs> just The Lord just breaks through the darkness of the yuck going on, and he arises and speaks to Jacob afresh. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Remember, this has been God's command before. Saying it again. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, chapter 35 breaks, breaks open with the Lord speaking directly to Jacob. And we must not miss this. I, I hit this over and over because it's so easy to get used to it. It is pure grace that God would even dare do this. Think about this. Out of all the people in all human history throughout all, all of that time, God, the sovereign king of the universe, who knows every grain of sand out there on the beach, the God who created all things out of nothing, specifically comes to this little fallen worm named Jacob and speaks directly to him. That's just astounding to me. We grow accustomed to it because it's in our Bibles all over the place, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or, or, who, or whoever But it's astounding, God Almighty to one particular individual. And so God comes to him, and God calls on Jacob to go back to Bethel. Bethel means God's house or the house of God, and dwell there. But notice, God commands Jacob to build an altar in Bethel. God also, in this first little portion of this chapter, reminds Jacob of his appearing in Bethel. God is reminding Jacob of past grace. Now, that's, uh, if there's kind of a phrase that you're going to hear over and over throughout this message, that's it, past grace. Because throughout this chunk of text that we're looking at this morning is Almighty God bringing Jacob back. He's bringing him back for remembrance for the purpose of renewal. Remembrance for the purpose of renewal. But something happens before any of that happens. It's a clear contrast here how Jacob is strongly leading his people. Look at verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. And change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob responds to God's call with absolute immediate obedience. Now what's interesting is you can see Jacob a few different times throughout the, throughout the narrative kind of drag his feet a little bit in reference to obedience. Uh, Earlier, as we saw him, um, again, trick Esau, not go with Esau, but gave him the idea he was going to go with Esau. And then also to make camp where God had told him to go, and he decided to pause for some time. Kind of a half obedience. You know what they call half obedience, right? It's called disobedience. And so... You see this a little bit throughout the life of Jacob, and you also see kind of a lack of leadership or strong, objective truth and a a stand-up guy in chapter 34. 35 comes, God speaks directly to him, and he clicks his heels in absolute, immediate, fast obedience to God's word. God said it, we're doing it. But first, before we go, something's got to be done. Before we walk in obedience to what God commanded, something has to happen. What's that? I want you to remove all the foreign gods away from us. Get it it absolutely away from us. I want you to wash 
and cleanse yourselves. I want you to change your garments. These are acts of repentance of what they've been doing. All three are acts of repentance before God. So, beloved, what Jacob is is driving at here with himself, but also with his people, is we need to repent of something before we walk in obedience. We need to leave something behind before we move forward. God has said, move forward. Before we do that, I want clean hands, pure hearts before we start walking in obedience to what he's commanded us. And you go, wow, you, hold on, Dan, you mean there was foreign gods in the camp, in the mix? Apparently. Whether it was the foreign gods that they stole after they took Shechem and his father and their people and killed all them and stole all their foreign gods, or whether there were some foreign gods even before that. Remember that Laban's daughters stole his foreign gods and hid them, actually took them with him when they fled. So there's, a, there's some pictures here sprinkled throughout that this foreign god, this idolatry, was sprinkled and intermingled, and Jacob is saying, I've had enough. We're done with that. I want you to gather it all up. I want you to bring it to me. I want you to change your clothes. I want you to cleanse yourself, and I want you to be prepared because we're going to walk in obedience before the Lord. And you go, where'd this guy come from? Chapter 34 would have been nice to have such a strong, godly leader, wouldn't it? Well, anytime I find myself, throughout this study, when I find myself beating up on Jacob, typically I find some kind of conviction how he and I align up with each other because he's a mere man fallen man, but a man that God is at work in, a man that God is, is maturing and producing and pouring his grace on. And that's no different than here. So we see, and it's kind of like a, a roller coaster throughout the, the life of these patriarchs, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Throughout our study in Genesis, we've, we've seen this, where uh, we see them and they go real high. We go, wow, no, that's a godly leader. That's somebody to emulate. That's somebody that is a good, strong example for my kids. Next chapter, yikes. No way. Kids, don't be like Father Abraham uh, in that way. Isaac, same thing. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Which proves exactly what we already knew. We're all in need of a Savior. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not superheroes with fresh action figures coming and being made. They were men who were fallen, that God had redeemed, that God was at work in, and God was producing godliness in. And Jacob's no different. Here's Jacob. In chapter 35, this is a beautiful high point of God's grace active in this guy's life. To the point that a good friend of Jacob could could stand aside and go, God's at work in you. You're acting different than I've seen you act in the past. Remember that day, Jacob, when you had the fake hair on your arms and you wore your brother's clothes and you just were a complete liar to your father? You're light years from that. Perfect? By no stretch. But God is at work in you. He is accomplishing his task in you. So there's a clear contrast here how Jacob is strongly leading his people in a clear direction of obedience to God's command. Jacob is in no way second-guessing God. This is important. He's not making a deal with the Lord. He's not trying to negotiate with God. God said it, yes, sir. But before we go, this house is going to get cleaned up. I want to see a change in these people, and I want anything that competes with God and these foreign idols removed. 
Now notice his description of the Lord. I love, I love some of these Old Testament descriptions where, you know, at times we get lost for words. We just say God, or we say Almighty God, or Sovereign God, or we, we do those kinds of things. I love how he speaks about the Lord here. He says, <clears throat> so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. See, even in the title or in the description, he's speaking about God's grace. And it's personal, is it not? He doesn't say the God who answers other people in their distress. He says the God who answered me in my distress. Past grace. The God who was there when I was scared to death. Nobody's with me. I'm, I'm scared of Esau. I'm fleeing. I'm running away. He's not present. What am I going to do? I'm all by myself with my head on this rock. That's when he came to my rescue. That moment where I actually had to face Esau, Almighty God rushed to my rescue once again and was right there in power. This is the God who was there for me in my distress. Beloved, you're no different than that. That Our God that we've been singing about, our God that is in this room right now, omnipresent, in power, that's the God who's been there for you in your distress. He ain't going anywhere. Now, I realize that at times our distress and difficult circumstances make it almost feel like, wow, God left Pacific City. He's right there. He ain't go anywhere. He's there with you in your distress. He's comforting you in your distress. And just as he promised Jacob, he was there in everything. Beloved, he's there with you as well. Jesus Christ himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so this glorious definition that Jacob gives of the Lord is a revelation of that which is in the heart of the man. All you have to do, if you really want to get a grasp of where a believer's at in their walk, is have a cup of coffee and just listen to how they talk about God. First and foremost, if they talk about God. But then listen to how they talk about God. Listen if there's warm tones, if there's a personal identification with him, if there's a recognition. Jacob's description of God here tells me a lot about where Jacob is at in his walk as a Christian, as a, as a follower of the Lord. This is the God who answered me in my distress, and this is the God who said he was with me and has been with me everywhere I have gone. Verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. The there in that text were not positive. No commentary was positive, whether that's the rings that was in the, the ears of the people or in the ears of the, of the idols. But either way, it's attached to the idolatrous practices that they're doing. What he's saying is purge from yourself the idolatrous actions that you have been engaged in. We're done here. Those are not going with us. We're leaving, and we're burying it here. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. In a sense, he's burying the past. He's going to leave this behind, and they are going to be on their way. There is nothing here of questioning Jacob or God on this command. Please notice that. Jacob does not question God in any way, shape, or form. And nobody in Jacob's camp says, wait, what are you doing? We, we're comfy here. We just killed everybody. We're, we've got all their stuff. We're, we made bank. Jacob, what's going on? None of it. 
Just silence on the line. All you have is, Jacob said, I want every idol, all of it, and I'm burying it and leaving it here. I want you to wash yourselves. I want you to change your garments. And all you see is clear obedience from his people. This is where where it's hard for Dan Mason as a preacher, but far more than a preacher, just a Bible studier or even a Bible reader, is this little, it's about, I don't know, half inch of white space between 34 and 35 in my Bible. And I think, man, oh man, what happened there? To go from chapter 34 where, what, dad, you're going to treat your daughter like that? What are you, nuts? And then chapter 35, God breaks in and speaks, and all of a sudden, quick obedience from Jacob and from all of his people. And I go, what? is this a different family? I mean, what, what is going on here? Well, the truth is, the sovereign king of the universe is at work in his people, bringing fresh conviction and fresh repentance in their heart. Because they are not questioning, there's no questioning of God, no questioning of Jacob anywhere in the text. Fast obedience. Fast obedience. But I don't want to go past that note too quickly, beloved, that do you please notice there is a removal and a cleansing before they want to walk in obedience. See, they're not saying, I want to take my sin with me as I follow God. They're saying, I want to leave that behind, and I want to go where he wants me to go. And, beloved, I don't, I don't mean that in the sense that you get yourself saved and you cleanse yourself before you can follow the Lord. But I will say, sin has a very potent, powerful way of destroying the beautiful day-to-day relationship you have with the Lord Jesus. Hiding sin and concealing sin and loving sin simultaneously while seeking to serve the Lord, just does, it does not work. It does not work. You go, Dan, we're all sinners. Well, I know. There's a vast difference between we're all sinners and I love this sin, I'm hiding this sin, and I'll try to serve the Lord. It does not work. And I, in this text, I find it so fascinating. The Lord didn't say a word about the foreign idols in this text specifically. Jacob did which tells me Jacob had a good concept of that garbage needs to stay here before we walk in obedience to what God has called us to do. And please notice, beloved, what's God calling him to do? He's calling him to go to Bethel and build an altar. You know what an altar is? It's just another idea or another, you could just simply put worship. The Lord is saying, I want you to come back to Bethel. I want you to come back to that place. And I want you to come and build an altar, and I want you to come and worship me. Bring your whole family. But you leave all that junk behind. You cleanse yourself. You do a 180 repentance and come follow me. And the text just tells us with great clarity, God said it. Jacob did it. Jacob said it. Jacob's people did it. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There's a divine protection from Almighty God for their sake in this text. God provided a supernatural protection for Jacob's group. After the mass killing that took place, they would no doubt be pursued by others that surrounded them. But the scripture simply says this, quote-unquote, terror kept all the surrounding peoples from seeking to do do them harm. Now, 
I know that typically liberals like to come after a text like this and they, they try to explain it away and try to get the supernatural out of it. Well, I, I'm a conservative, Bible-believing Christian and I read the text and I say, don't remove the supernatural. Don't explain the supernatural out of your Bible. The Scripture says God put a great terror over them and that's what I believe happened. How does that work, Dan? Come on, I'm only 38. I don't know. Ask Dennis or Lad. You know, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I don't know what that looked like. Was it just completely supernatural? Boom, and they, they were scared and they didn't want to touch them. Those are God's men. I'm not going anywhere near them. I don't know the answer to that question. All I know is what the text says. And the text says a great terror went over all the surrounding people, so not one of them bothered them. Free to go by divine protection. Almighty God provided that for them. Again, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. All because Jacob absolutely is worthy of that, right? Okay, good, you're following along. All right, back to the text. Now look at verse 6. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. Remember, it was called Luz before. He called it Bethel after his last occurrence there which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, this is what is so interesting, is that it's going back to a location where something very providential, something very special, and something very life-altering happened to this man. God is saying, remember that place, Jacob, where I came to you in your distress, where I spoke to you, where I made promises to you, where you had a particular sweet moment with the living God. I want you to return there, and I want you to build another altar in that location and come worship me there. And you go, why is God doing this? Why, why is he sending him back? Why to that particular location? What is the Lord accomplishing in doing this? What I'm convinced of, beloved, at least one point is that God's taking him back to remind him of past grace. God is reiterating the grace that he's shown in the past, but also the promises that he's given and continues to hold to. Now you go, is it possible that Jacob forgot God's grace in the past? Well, I don't know. Let me ask you. You ever forget some of the grace he's shown you in your past? And somebody happens to go, oh, man, when you were 17, I saw when this happened and that happened, you go, are you sure you're talking about me? Yeah, talking about you. I was right there. I saw God so powerfully use you and how he was working in you. Man, I must have completely forgot about that. There's something very potent and powerful when we are reminded of grace from the past. We need to do that. I'm going to speak more to that in just a little bit, but we need to consistently do that. And so the Lord is saying, I'm bringing you back to a location where I met with you in your complete distress. Remember, Jacob, if you look around, you've got family, a ton of family. You've got a mass amount of possessions. You've faced your brother your brother and you had a good connection, kind <clears> of. <throat> you are a wealthy man with promises coming out of your ears from the living God. But let me remind you, Jacob, where you were when you came to Bethel. 
You were scared. You were alone. You were fleeing your brother who said he was going to kill you. You had no idea what your future looked like. And you were in distress. And I, in my sovereign grace, met you in your dark night of the soul to bring comfort into your life and to reiterate the promises that I made to your father and to his father. Now, at that moment, that's where you would expect Jacob or any one of us to go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Lord, I, I, I've gotten so busy. The schedule is so frantic. Things are just going crazy. I've been so scared of my brother, and all these things have happened. But I need to refresh my memory of the grace of the past in order to rejuvenate me for the present. And so the Lord gives a fresh reminder to this man. Jacob and the crew made their trip to lose. And Jacob built the altar as God had commanded, and Jacob named it El Bethel, or God of Bethel. This was a location where God graciously met with him before. Now, interesting little tidbit that's thrown in here, if you notice. Um, Verse 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called the name Alon Bacchus which means oak of weeping. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We just had all this sentimentality and this beautiful rejuvenation that's coming from the Lord Jacob. And then, oh, by the way, the nurse died. You go, what What does that have to do with anything? Well, there's a couple pieces here. Most likely, this is also letting us know that Rebecca is dead. And that at some point in the interactions that this nurse eventually took up with Jacob and his family. And now Deborah died in their presence there. Uh, Deborah, if you remember, when Rebekah is given to Isaac and she travels, she takes Deborah with her. So this woman is apparently a beloved piece to this whole makeup of this family. Well, why else would they call it the Oak of Weeping? They're not weeping for joy, I doubt. Rather, this is their mourning, the loss of a precious nurse. Here's something I'll have you think about. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it. Why didn't we hear about Rebecca's death? Period. I'll <laughs> just leave that there, or a question mark. You, you, you figure that out, let me know. I'll preach on it next week, and, and we'll go from there. <clears throat> I just find it fascinating. We're told about Rebecca's nurse death, which happens right in the middle of this precious text, and then nothing about Rebecca. Why is it not spoken of there? I don't know. Um, is it because of her trickery and her deceit. Well, if that's the case, then we're not going to mention anybody in the Bible, so that's not going to work. So I'd just love to hear your thought. There's a question freshly planted. You buy the coffee, we'll talk. Verse 9, God prepared to, or, or appeared to Jacob again. So he's appeared to him once, appears to him again, when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. Now, underlining your Bible every time you see this, because it's amazing, and God said, And God said to him, your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he he called his name Israel. So Jacob, heel grabber or cheater, has now been transitioned to, he wrestles with God. So he calls him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, nobody more mighty than me. Why is he saying that before he says these promises? Well, it makes sense, right? If I give you a promise that we all know I can't 
accomplished, then nobody cares. It's like, I'm going to give you all $4.5 million next Sunday if you're back here. We go, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, there's no way I can back that up. But when God says, I am God Almighty, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody has sovereignty over me. I am the king over all that exists. And then gives promises. Makes all the sense in the world. First, he's showing his badge, the authority, and then he's going to tell you what he's going to do. Here's my authority. Now let me tell you how it's going to be. So there's the authority. Now listen to what he says. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. These, this is a reiteration of the exact same promises he gave to Abraham, he gave to Isaac, and now he gives to Jacob. God is a God of his word. The Lord will always keep his promises in perfection. And to start it by saying, I am God Almighty, makes me think of all the way into Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You see, he, he shows whose authority is stamped on what's going to take place. Because nowhere in this text does the Lord say, I'm God Almighty, and maybe this will happen unless you throw it off course, Jacob. He does not talk like that in any way, shape, or form. He didn't with Abraham, he doesn't with Isaac, and he doesn't with Jacob. This is the way it is. I'm Almighty. You can't stop it. <clears throat> for I have selected to do this. And beloved, when we come up against God and God says, this is how it will be, and we say, well, I don't like that. In the words of my three older brothers, tough noogies. Because he's the sovereign of the universe, and he does what he pleases, and we submit to the sovereign God. Now let's look at Jacob's response in the last portion of this passage. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured an oil and poured oil on it. This is the first occurrence you see quote unquote drink offering. You'll see that all kinds of places especially in the law in the in the future, but here this is the first time we see that he actually took a drink, probably wine or something of that nature, and poured it on that altar before God, giving something of value from him before the Lord. The same with the oil as he pours it on the altar. This is saying, God, you are of greater value than I am. I'm giving this sacrifice to you to make it crystal clear. You are the king. You are of all value. You are the worthy one. And so I take a piece from that which is valuable to me, and I lay it before you, to show that you are of greater value than anything else I have in this world. He worshipped, in other words. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. He reestablishes this name. He restates this name. This is God's house. This is where he has truly met with the Lord. Now, you take a text like that, and you can't help but wonder, so, all right, Dan, how does, how does this apply to me? How does this strike me? Like, I'm going to jump into the day tomorrow and um, go back to work or go back to whatever God has in front of me. 
How does this particular inspired text in Jacob's life touch Dan Mason? Three. I got three for you. Usually just have one. This one's too good, so I got three. Number one, we should keep, seek to keep short accounts of our sin before God as believers. 1 John 1, 1 9 says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We must pursue clean hands and pure hearts in our pursuit of obedience. This is why it's, it's tough at times when we say, I just don't have any desire to read the Word. I don't really want to pray at all. I think it's an honest question to ask yourself or in the right company to ask a brother or sister, is there some kind of sin you are concealing that you know is doing damage to your relationship with you and the Lord? Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's just a, a really dark time and you're struggling, there's some depression going on, and that's real. But what I see in my Bible often is that which does damage to my relationship with God is my own sin. And so that keeping of short accounts, Father, if there's something in me you see, would you make it evident? Make it evident by somebody, and maybe Amber can point it out, or, or somebody in the church can point it out, or Lord, just make it clear to me from your word. But God, if there's something that I know is, this is doing damage to my walk with you, would you make it apparent to me? Because I want you more than I want that. Even if in the flesh it feels so hard at times, God, I, I still, I want you more than I want that. So make it known, those keeping short accounts. But beloved, I just encourage you, when was the last time you prayed and asked the Lord, God, if there's something evil in me, point it out and make it abundantly clear to me right now. Number two, and I mean this with all my heart, more than, I know I say that often, but I really do, as, I, as I've been thinking about this text, Jacob is just, my heart is getting torn open with this guy. Take time <clears throat> Take time to look back in thanksgiving for fresh renewal. Take time to look back in thanksgiving for fresh present renewal. It's a wise practice to periodically pause and consider God's grace in the past. We should go to these Bethels of our past every now and again. Revisit them. Consider what God had done in those moments. And remind ourselves of God's goodness, as well as remind ourselves of his everlasting promises to, to us. Jacob's return to Bethel should be a reminder to all of us. We can find grace and strength for our today as we remind ourselves of the grace we received yesterday. So um, I realize that the Apostle Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the upward call of God. And that's, that's very, very much true. But beloved, isn't it fascinating how often in the Old Testament they build an altar at a certain location? Why, Why are you guys doing that? What are you doing? What are you doing? Because I want the generations that come after me to see that and go, Dad, why is that pillar there? Well, let me share with you what God did with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's good to come back and remember. Beloved, every time we come to the communion table, we're doing it in remembrance of him. 
And I think on an individual basis, it's a, it's a good practice to stop and go, man, when I was 16, 15 years old, I'm heading that direction, and God so kindly brought that pastor in my life. Or my mom or my dad, they came to me with those concerns, and it just it gave me that fresh 180. Or that particular individual just wouldn't just dog it at work and wouldn't leave me alone. I was so angry at that guy. And how God was doing heart surgery through his words at lunch hour. To just stop and ponder how gracious he is. And then what happens is when you see how gracious God has been, you go, man, I am sweating tomorrow way too much. Because his track record's spot on. Perfect. Number three. Don't ever forget the nature of our Lord. Our God is gracious and unbelievably patient in his maturing of his people. He tarries long with the dumb redeemed. The Lord is so kind, so gracious, and so just patient to wait with Dan Mason, to just shuffle Dan Mason. Come on, Dan, here's where it's at. Here's the word. You've got so many means of grace in your life. I'm at work in you. Here we go. Continue on. Because, beloved, the truth is, we should not be surprised 35 follows chapter 34. We should look at that and go, man, it's just like his character. It's just like the character of God to not just leave me and say enough. But he kindly and graciously scoops me up, calls me to repentance, and gives me fresh vision of where to go. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for...